I hope you got a Bible with you. We're going to be in Luke 24 to begin um, our time. And if you would put a marker at Romans 6, we'll be turning there and uh, toward the end of our study this morning. Uh, but Luke 24, we'll begin reading in just a few minutes. Um, always um, excited to be here um, a little bit more than usual for the message today. I believe that God's got something um, good to say to us, um, as always, but something very, very good. Uh, to say today. Um, You know, as a pastor, I always look forward to Easter um, and leading us through the gospel narratives and trying to leave some powerful impact on us um, as pertaining to the cross and resurrection and how that applies to you and me in today's world um, just as much as it did to them and their world. Um, You know, chronicling Jesus's life and ministry never gets old for me. Um, I've been doing this for almost 10 years now, and I love the spring of the year as we get to kind of look with fresh eyes, um, as we begin to look at the wonders and the words, the signs and the sermons. I, I don't know about you, but I always stand in awe, and I always stand amazed at what we may know by heart, but what uh, it leaves a, a, a fresh impact on my heart every year. You know, this year we spent nearly two months aiming to look at the life and times of Jesus through the eyes of his original followers, his fans, his adversaries, his opponents. We uh, followed Luke, uh, Luke's gospel as he kind of put us in their shoes and helped us see through their eyes. Uh, we followed Luke's orderly account that compiled a narrative um, of what actually happened in and around the life of Jesus, and we spent uh, weeks and weeks talking about why we can know this is actually, um, uh, take this as truth, as historical, um, a document that Luke wrote um, all those years ago. Luke told this story from these eyewitness vantage points, Um, and and this isn't just about Luke's gospel, but really the Bible in general. Um, The Bible and its documents, if they were only written to be history books, if they were just meant to inform us, if they were just meant to educate us, um, what we've learned is the sheer veracity, the, ho- the cohesiveness, and the corroboration between the writ- writers and the sources. We could have confidence in the Bible as a truthful book if it was just written to tell history alone. You know, biblical apologetics um, and studies have done tremendous work to show how trustworthy the Bible is, the accounts that are the basis of history alone, um, and, and that proves tremendously beneficial when trying to convince somebody to take the Bible and its heroes seriously. But we know the Bible is not just a history book. It's more than that. It's better than that. Uh, Again, the Bible is completely trustworthy. The history is as it is documented, but the agenda of the scriptures are not just to bring us a viewfinder whereby we can see through the eyes of those who lived and breathed and experienced for themselves. More specifically, the gospel isn't just a story told so that we can see through their eyes. Jesus invites us to follow in his steps and walk in his spirit, to see for ourselves. Because it's God's Spirit that brought the Bible, that brought the Scriptures together. And it's God's Spirit that takes these eyewitness accounts and it enables us to have our own experiences. So that, as we've learned, it can be from their eyes, through His Spirit, to our own hearts. And I hope that's maybe something that you've, you've hoped was true as we studied the last two months. I hope as we've looked through their eyes, maybe you thought, is this still true? Can this still be true? Is the invitation to follow Jesus still there for me? And, and as you've learned, it absolutely is. And today I want to dive even more into that. 
You know, we've studied in our Wednesday night series before um, about this, and, and, and we won't go into full detail, but we've learned the Bible isn't just a book of information, it's a book of inspiration. And, and I'm glad for the, inspira- in, in the information, and I'm, I, I, put, you know, I put my life on the line to, to, to defend the information, but I'm glad it's not just about informing. Uh, the Bible is a book of inspiration, and here's the thing, information stops short of showing you um, uh, uh, what you can see for yourself. Information um, stops at showing you what others have seen and experienced and only teases you with a vicarious hope. Information is like the sun that beams down. You can see it. It may warm you, but there's no real transfer that lasts unless you're a plant, right? Haha, <laughs> that makes no sense, does it? Right? It, we just get b- blinded by the sun, but it doesn't really do anything for us, right? But inspiration doesn't just show you. Inspiration literally means to breathe into, to breathe life into. It, it's like the crisp morning air. It's like a refreshing wind that blows in. And just when you're about to run out of air, your lungs are filled up anew. And thankfully, there's not a piece of Scripture that just seeks to inform, but God wills that they inspire as well, and they offer a fresh wind from heaven with every glance. I say this often, from page to person. You can bet on it. And we've learned through studying Luke, and you've learned through reading the Bible, I hope, the message of the Bible isn't just to teach some moral lesson with every story, but between every story, through every teaching, there's an invitation to follow after God and find more than just bullet points and laws and lessons, but to find the power from heaven that we see on display on these pages but can still be on display today in our lives. That can change our hearts, not just our minds. To make us different. To make us new people, not just smarter people. After all, the message of the Bible isn't learn all of this because one day in heaven there's going to be a test. The message of the Bible isn't learn all of this so that you might pass a test one day. Behind all the text, there's a single unified power and the hopes is that we can receive the Spirit and pass from death to life. We've learned from the Gospels over the Easter season that we've been invited to follow Jesus, to become like Him, to walk in His steps, to live after His Spirit. And and even as Luke sought to tell us the facts and order the story's details, he leaves a clear reminder that Jesus offers us something more, even 2,000 years later. I want to begin where we left off last week. Uh, If you weren't here with us, it's still... Uh, in and of itself, uh, uh, a text that we can learn from. Luke 24, verse 44, through the end of the gospel. This is Jesus's, this, these are Jesus' last words to his disciples from Luke's point of view um, before he departs or uh, ascends to heaven. Luke 24, verse 44, He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the whole Old Testament. He said, it's all led up to me. Everything you've got before, from Malachi on back, it's all pointing to me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on 
high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Luke's closing words call back to his opening words. Whereas the people in the temple at the beginning were wondering and waiting for God's Spirit and presence to return, not knowing if or when, these at the end know that He has indeed returned. They've seen Him with their own eyes. Of course, Jesus' words bring a conclusion to all that Luke has built up to. But also, He teases there is more, much more, to come. You'll remember at the beginning of Luke's story, it was being prophesied by John the Baptist that Jesus had not just come to inspect impact his generation and to do a good for them in a vacuum, but that his work would be a timeless, have a timeless impact and offer an ageless invitation. John said this whenever he was baptizing people in the river, I baptize you with water, but he was mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to undie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and I believe that's the power from on high that Jesus is talking about in verse number 49. So you can see this was all being built up to in Luke's gospel. Jesus issued an invitation to anyone that followed him, to everyone that followed him. He said, follow me. I'll make you something more. I'll show you more. And the way the gospel tells the story, this invitation wasn't just to them but it's to everyone that reads and hears this story to this day. He is on record that choosing to follow Him will bring tons of positives. But on the contrary, to not follow Jesus would prove to be very dangerous. No ancient religious leader or figure ever came across as arrogant as Jesus. Not an Old Testament prophet, not any other would-be prophet from any other religion of their day or ours. Jesus came across so narrow, so exclusive, his detractors and religious adversaries would ask him point blank, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you making yourself out to be? His demands seemed so great. He seemed like he was asking people to do outlandish, consequential, risky things. For what? To follow him? On one occasion, Jesus raised the stakes so high, many thought for sure he couldn't be serious. But he made a point when he raised these stakes to say that to not follow him would be risking losing everything. He said in Luke 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The demands Jesus may have asked people to, 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 to uh, sign up to, they may have been great, but Jesus leaned into this because Jesus knew the exchange would be an invaluable gain. Jesus detailed and described life with him as being unrivaled by any other way and claimed there was no other way to know God or connect with God. He pitched his way as being the only way to the future that God was building towards. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is when Jesus tells a parable of a master who sends an invitation out. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say, those who have been invited, come, for everything is now ready, as if the, our future, the future you want, the future you dream about, 
the future you pray for, it is only found through following Jesus. He is the only one who's prepared for you everything you could ever imagine. Even what you don't realize you need. He exposed and ridiculed any and all excuses as being utterly embarrassing and insulting in light of what was at stake. When people begin to say, I can't come, I have, I'm too busy, I've got things going on. This is what his response was. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Okay, Jesus, who do you think you are? I mean, you know, this is a casual religious thing, Jesus. We show up once a week. Come on. What are you trying to, to, to demand or expect from us? And then Jesus said, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Who says that kind of stuff? Who asks that kind of sacrifice of anybody? Unless what he is offering is indeed exclusive him unless life and death really are on the line unless your eternity really is in the balances of what jesus says and what jesus does another important thing that you note from the entire bible especially the gospels jesus talked about building a kingdom about a coming kingdom he claimed to be ushering in a brand new era and he said, uh, he said something, and, and it would always come across so, so arrogant to the people that heard it. But Jesus claimed that experiencing Jesus and knowing him personally was fundamental to entering the kingdom. Apart from him, it would be easily and most certainly missed. When people thought he was just a prophet, when they thought he was just a preacher or a messenger or a leader, one of many or one of many to come or many that have come, Jesus said, I need, I need you to understand who I am. And I need you to understand what I'm asking of you. He said to them, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. He said, If you continue to look at me as an option, if you think I'm just a choice, you'll miss it. Kind of ominous, but clearly, again, Luke made it clear to us, the Bible makes it clear to us, the stakes are very high. If you consider all the outlandish statements and claims that Jesus made about himself, you start to think, this can't just be history. I mean, if this was just history, why would you add these kind of outlandish statements in? He can't just be a normal guy. I mean, these kind of ideas and statements, they break the credibility. They're too out there. They're too extreme. On one occasion, Jesus stood up in front of the religious leaders. He pointed his finger in their face on the temple grounds. And he said to them, he looked directly at them and said, what then is written? Is it that is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He says, guys, y'all are rejecting me and I am going to become the cornerstone of the entire kingdom of God. And then he did the most insulting thing to any Jewish person. He sat down at Passover the week before he died. He broke the bread. He poured the juice. They had the Seder meal and he said, guys, before we take this meal, I need to let you know. This is the last time you'll ever celebrate it, looking back to Exodus. From now on, this holiday is going to be all about me. They looked around. What? From now on, this is not the lamb of Egypt. This is not the blood of the lamb. 
the body of the Lamb. This is about me because the whole world's going to have me at the center of it one day. Just wait. I am going to be worshipped from all over every tribe, every tongue. They're going to come together on this week and they're not going to think about the Lamb of Egypt. They're going to think about the Lamb of God slain tomorrow. The disciples thought, whoo he is losing his mind. But whatever, Jesus, okay, well, you know, you, you've said a lot of cool things, so we'll go with it. And just last week, we celebrated the Passover meal. And we didn't think about a lamb in Egypt. We thought about Jesus. Funny how Jesus has been proven so right. But in his day, these things that he said, they seem so crazy. But here's the thing. If Jesus is who he claims to be, in his original audience, even to me and you, if Jesus really is the guy he calls himself and claims himself to be, Jesus doesn't just demand an audience. He just demands a response. I mean, he said on one occasion that he was the bread of life. He said he told the crowd that if they were thirsty, they ought to come to him and receive the water of life. Who says that? He stood in front of a whole crowd one day and said, I am the light of the world. You're in darkness unless you follow me. It's pretty bright to me, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. He said on one occasion, I am the door to the abundant resurrection life of God. He said, I'm the I and the Father are one. I talk to the Father and the Father talks to me and you can't talk to Him, but I can. And if you want to talk to Him, you better talk to me. And people thought, Who, what, what is wrong with you? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to God except through me. That's what crazy people say. Unless they absolutely are right. Otherwise, you make fun of them. But if they are right, you do whatever they say. I mean, if all this is true, there are crazy implications that cross generational barriers, that cross religion, religious boundaries. And what makes the account of Jesus so powerful is that the writers never qualify his statements. They never tone down his rhetoric. They never try to sand off the rough edges. If you're reading them from front to back, it makes Jesus last week on earth all the more important. Because the one who claimed to be God in flesh bows out in the most pitiful, powerless, lame, and underwhelming way. No doubt everyone who observed him thought in their own record of thinking, what a hoax, what a fraud, what a liar. How foolish were we to, be, to believe him as they watched him give up, as they watched him die a lonely death. In his death, they were all the more convinced that all they had saw was false hope. Here's what we know. If Jesus had remained in the grave, all the eyewitnesses and disciples would have tried to forget any and every memory they had of him. Nothing would have been recorded. Nothing would have been remembered. Not, because he, not, not to say he wasn't an awesome teacher in and of itself, or because he didn't interpret and apply the Bible truthfully. Not because his miracles and his parables didn't and wouldn't still mean something. But listen... Jesus said too much about himself. He made too many claims about himself to simply ignore and uphold him as a false, as a prophet. How can the light of the world be buried in darkness? I mean, he claimed too much. How can the one who promised abundant, everlasting resurrection life die? 
He would have been chalked up as a false prophet because he promised more than the free stuff and moral lessons. He promised way, way more. If he had stayed dead, Christianity would have died on the vine. By Sunday, everyone felt betrayed and had given up. The empty tomb and a few accounts of seeing Jesus were not enough to convince anybody. But when the 11 disciples came face to face with Jesus, the story changed. In Luke 24, 11, they doubted, they thought the idea of a resurrection was a fairy tale. But after an encounter and another encounter, encounter in verse 31, their eyes were opened. In verse 32, their hearts were burning. And even if in verse 41, they still couldn't wrap their rational minds around it, they knew what their eyes were seeing. They knew what their hearts were feeling. Jesus was alive. And when they were pressed and questioned about the believability of such a thing, they would simply respond with beaming faces, we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. It might not make sense, guys, but we've seen Him. We've heard Him. And boy, He's alive. We read the promise at the end of Luke's Gospel. Jesus called back to all of His teachings, to all of His signs, all that talk of raising the stakes, about life and death being on the line. He promises that the payoff was close. He told them that they would be clothed with power from on high. And from that point forward, all who believed in Him, who followed Him, would receive this same gift. This falls in line with His previous promises that set up life under His kingdom. In Him, and only in Him can we find true life. Only in Christ is, can we be prepared for God's kingdom. Can we live in God's kingdom? He is the bread. He is the fount. He is the light. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. He is the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one accesses God apart from Jesus. If you read Acts 1, Luke saved a bit of this conversation at the end of Luke's Gospel. He saves a bit of it for the beginning of his second volume. And Jesus details what this power from on high is actually about. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the power of the Father, promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's talk about baptism for just a minute. This isn't about water. It's about being buried. The word baptism means to be immersed. It literally is used in ancient Greek texts regarding dipping garments in dye. They go in one color, they come out another. It's used in ancient Greek cookbooks regarding pickling vegetables. You baptized the cucumber, right, to make a pickle. When Jesus talked about baptism, when the Bible talks about baptism, water is often the framing device because it's a visual of someone being covered and uncovered. It helps us visualize it. But what, we, what you may not know, water in the ancient world, water in the Bible is a picture of death and judgment. The flood covered the earth in its baptism. It was buried, but it was raised to a new earth, to a new creation. Likewise, when Jesus talks about baptism being baptized with the Holy Spirit, He's calling back to His own death and His own resurrection. His own burial and His own resurrection and our burial and our resurrection. He made a promise to Mark or to John and, and James. The cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Dying to one thing, being raised to another thing. And to translate that for you, 
to connect the dots for you. Dying to sin, shame, and condemnation. Being raised to new life. And here's the main course I want to leave you feeding off of today, if I can. Some of us, some of us, not all of you, but some of you, some of us, we need to have a real conversation for the next 10 minutes or so. We're not living like we've been raised from the dead and given new life in Christ. I don't, you don't want to amen that, because that means it's you, right? But I know some of you want to say that's true. I know all of us on any given day, that may be true about us, isn't it? We're not living like we've been raised from the dead and given new life in Jesus. Why is that? We're not living like we were spiritually dead, but now we're spiritually alive. We were under sin, now we're saved from sin. We were condemned, but now we're justified. We were in shame, but now we're at peace. We were living with no hope, but now we have an eternal hope. We were living like the days, the best we got, but now we can start living for heaven. What I'm trying to say is, if we're saved, we're no longer in sin, not controlled by sin, not judged by sin, not destined by sin. From the way you live to to how you die, from your potential to your destiny, we are not held back by sin anymore. From the enemy you face today, tomorrow, and eternity, he can't win. Death can't win and it won't. When you question your purpose or your meaning, remember heaven is your future. You already are in the kingdom of God and will take up residence there forever and ever. Are you living like that's true? Are you acting like, living like, investing like you've been saved from hell and are going to heaven? Saved from sin and by grace uh, given the keys to abundant resurrection life? Are you living like that's true? And Jesus said, listen, I've given you this promise. As I was buried, as I took sin in the grave, and as I raised up in the Spirit, you, if you're saved, you've been buried. Your sin has been forgiven. Your shame has been erased. Your condemnation has been done away with. And you've been raised in new life. Are you living like that's true for you? I want to read Romans 6, 1-5. Paul articulates this better than me. As he speaks over us concerning what salvation means, concerning what being clothed in power means. Here's what he says in Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know? Because they didn't. As many of, you, many of us has been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. I didn't just make that up, right? Baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so so we also should walk in newness of life. You see there? See the, the, the buried, raised, dead, alive. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Not maybe or possibly, 
What does it say? Certainly. So what he's trying to say is in death, in his death, our sin has been forgiven. In his resurrection, his spirit has been given to us. We are powered, driven by, and changed by his spirit. That means there is resurrection power and resurrection promise for today, tomorrow, and forever. We find promises and power for life and death and for eternity. His resurrection empowers us with a better response to today, a better hope for tomorrow, and a better place in forever. And I want to wind down today by talking about our response to today. Every day should be lived in light of His resurrection promise and power. Romans 6 aims to steer us in that direction as it speaks clearly of the power from on high Jesus promised to give. And notice the contents are very personal and very practical regarding what our hearts should look like as a result of being emptied of our sin and filled with His Spirit. So let me ask you this. How has the resurrection of Jesus impacted you today? Today, this morning. How has it impacted you this past week? How does it impact you every day? If Jesus is who He says He is, if salvation does what He says it can do, what, what's it look like for you as a Christian? If the resurrection matters for today, how has that manifested in your life? It's too powerful of a thing to not be noticed and not make a difference. Romans here takes us from living free, talks about living free from sin, specifically pertaining to our actions, our deeds, our behavior, our emotional reactions and responses to this and that, the unexpected and the expected. What can and does walking in the newness of life look like for you? Let me ask you this. What is old is getting old and it's gotten old about your nature that needs to go. And don't elbow the person beside you. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's language you use. Maybe it's repetitive choices and excuses you make. Think to yourself, what struggle in your character, in your relationships, in your ethics and morality, would you say, this has gotten old? Maybe you're not ready to call it sin yet. But you would say it's getting old. Maybe something that you outwardly defend, but inwardly you think to yourself, this is getting old. Maybe there's something you know you should be doing or something you're tired of feeling bad and you're tired of feeling worse when you do the opposite, alternative, wrong thing. You think this is getting old. And guess what? God probably agrees with you. And I guarantee you the closest person to you agrees with you. Verse 2 asks this powerful question. I'll put it up here for us. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's not judgmental. It's an honest, liberating question. It's a question regarding resurrection matters for you. Maybe you don't even know. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We can obtain new life. We've been clothed with and united to His resurrection life. I mean, if that's true, that's, there's, there's serious implications for you and me. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man, our old nature was crucified with him. The body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who died has freed, has been freed from sin. 
Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, as in, in the same way, you also reckon or consider yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. A few things I gather from that. They stand out to me. We're no longer slaves. We've been set free. We're alive in Christ. <clears throat> We're no longer slaves. We've been set free. We're alive in Christ. Amen. Okay, that's better. Does that describe you as a professing believer? I'm not fussing or trying to make you feel bad. I'm pretty much guessing you're already feeling bad if you're not walking like that's true. If you're still a slave to something that's getting old, has gotten old, and is old, if you aren't free from that kind of bondage, maybe you deal with fear and dread and anger and bitterness and greed and jealousy and all those nasty things. If, if Christian faith, hope, love, joy, generosity, and contentment, if they seem foreign to you, maybe there's something old that still has dominion over you. Oh, I can't love them. What are you talking about? I can't have a better attitude. I can't go to work with better. I, I, I can't be joy. I can't be happy for them. Well, I, I can't afford to give. I can't, I can't do that. You don't understand. If these ideas of what Christian joy and hope and love and peace and contentment if these ideas seem foreign to you, maybe something old has control of you. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let, do not let, underline that please, or, or highlight it, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Do not let. Let me ask you this. Are you angry? Are you angry every day? Are you jealous of people all the time? You don't know why? You're sorry? Are you bitter? Not sometimes, but when you're around them? Are you greedy? Do you just hold on to everything? Are you afraid? Do you dread things? You don't even know why you should dread, but you do. I know you don't feel like you're letting those things control you. But what if you are? What are you letting have a place in your life that is taking control of your life, that's taking the place of a passion for God? Look, I'm not saying you're letting it control you, but you're letting it be in the closet. It's in your head. It's there. What are you letting have a place that it's taking control? And this is the hardest part. I'm not saying the struggle isn't real or heavy, but I, I am saying that maybe we've not considered that Jesus has given us the choice and the ability to be free. If that's true, wow, right? I mean, if it's not true, then I'm just a, I'm a bad self-help motivational speaker. But listen, I can't help you at all. But if it's absolutely true, and the resurrection gives you the ability to make a choice, and we already know God has made His choice, if you follow his voice, your choice can be freedom because he's already chosen you. He's chose you. He's not going to undo it. Don't present yourself 
to sin? Look at verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, your members as instruments of the righteousness of God, for sin shall no longer have dominion over you, for you're not under law, you're under grace. Unwrap the gift of grace. Be wrapped in His presence is what Paul is telling us. So just a few questions before we quit. What sin has control of you? No sin has control of me, Justin. Nothing controls me. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe I don't. It may not be that sin, a sin that causes you to do something wrong, it may be that sin is preventing you from doing something right. That's what we need to let the Spirit of God try us and, 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 and enlighten us today. What is sin leading you to do this wrong by all means? But what about what is sin preventing you, keeping you, stunting you from doing that you know would be good for you and for God's glory? Maybe sin has control or influence over your words, your actions, your decisions, over your heart, over your mind. And whether it's the choices you make that cause regret or choices that you don't make that will cause regret. Again, I ask you, is there anything controlling you that is taking life from you, keeping you from where God wants you to be? Habits and patterns of behavior in your morality, in your finances, in your relationships, in your devotion to God that are not good for you, that are not good for those around you, and they're not good for your future. And don't make excuses. Well, everybody struggles. I, I know everybody struggles. I don't care about everybody right now. I care about you. And you should too. I'm just asking a question. Are you not under grace? Why are you still living in sin's stronghold? You've been raised from sin. You're under grace. How can a Christian continue to be controlled by anything that takes life away? How can we resist God's grace like that? This is not a matter of condemnation. This is a matter of salvation. This isn't about me knocking you down. Sin's already done that. This is about Jesus trying to raise you up. Flip over, if you will, Romans 8, verse 9. Hear this. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If, the Spirit, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in who? You. Give life is Bible talk for adding the heart and mind of Jesus to your life. The resurrection can matter and mean every day good for you. The resurrection affords you the freedom to walk out of any grave. I don't care how many rocks are in front of it or how deep it's buried. The resurrection affords you the freedom to walk out of any grave. Do as what Romans 6 told us to do. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. This isn't about having faith in your own ability, motivating yourself. This is about trusting in what God has done for you, choosing to believe that God is for you, and saying, that's enough for you. Saying, if God is for me, that's enough for me. He is enough for me. I can have faith. I can love again. I can have joy and peace again. I can walk out of this grave of bitterness and anger and frustration and defeat. I can because Jesus 
made it possible. Listen, Jesus claimed many things about Himself. He proved all of them to be true when He walked out of His grave. He pitched so many promises on the basis of His resurrection. If His claims about Himself were true, His claim on you as in your mind, that can be true too. Right? I mean, if, listen, if you, maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what, I, I wish that were true. I just can't see myself like that. I can't walk out of this grave. And listen, that's, that's enough for me to help you with. Because if you're at least considering it, if you're at least entertaining the idea, I wish that were true, but I don't know if it can be true for me. Listen, do you not think God is able to help you take that first step? And listen, God doesn't just cheer you on from a book or from a throne. His Spirit moves towards you, resurrecting, clothing, and empowering you. Do you believe that? Maybe it's time to say that out loud. I know the Spirit of God's moving in somebody's direction. Maybe it's time you need to say it out loud in front of somebody. Jesus is enough. I believe that Jesus is enough. I will trust that I am dead to sin and alive in Him. Because if the resurrection matters, before we can talk about tomorrow and forever, we got to talk about today. And I believe the resurrection can matter for you today. But you got to make that first, take that first step and say those words. You got to believe. And in your unbelief, God's going to help you. I promise you that.